Hello and welcome to episode 238 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. It's my pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Terrence M. Stanton. We are recording on Tuesday, July 12th, 2022, continuing in this month of July, the month dedicated to the devotion of the most precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with the book Devotion to the Precious Blood by Father M.F. Walls, which was initially published in 1925. This section of the text is entitled The Precious Blood in the Mass. And once again, this is decades before the Novus Ordo. I highly recommend you avoid the Novus Ordo and attend either the traditional Latin Mass or Divine Liturgy. The Magnificent Temple, the hundreds of priests and Levites, the solemn rites, the beautiful songs, the thousands of victims, all this in the Jewish worship was inspiring indeed. That, however, which must have made the deepest impression on the faithful Israelites was seeing the priest who had charge of the temple service accept and slay the offering, carefully gather its blood, sprinkle with it him who offered the victim, and pour out the remainder around the altar. This was a daily custom and lasted from the time of Aaron to the coming of Christ, with the exception of the period during which the Jews were in captivity. What a unique scene is presented to our vision in the description of the ceremonies of the Passover, the greatest feast of the Hebrews, in which they celebrated their escape from the angel of the Passover and their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. In commemoration of these miraculous events, Moses commanded that at Eastertide a lamb be slain by every family and the doorpost sprinkled three times with its blood, In the days of Christ, it was customary for every Jew to eat the Paschal Lamb at Jerusalem. The city itself was not large enough to contain the immense number of guests. They, therefore, pitched their tents beyond the city limits. Josephus tells us that just before the destruction of Jerusalem, 250,000 lambs were slain at one time for the Feast of Easter. Since no fewer than 10 persons partook of each lamb, we can estimate the number of persons who participated in this grand act of sacrifice. When we recall the manner in which these sacrificial lambs were immolated, the scene becomes still more spectacular. At three o'clock on the Thursday before Easter, the priests of the temple blew great blasts on their silver trumpets to tell the waiting multitude that they were ready for the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb. Then hundreds of thousands of lambs came into view, carried hither and thither from the temple, on the shoulders of the leaders of each little band of pilgrims. Each lamb was then suspended on two sticks forming a cross. The longer stick was driven through the body and into the tendons of the hind leg. The shorter one caused the front feet to be extended. These supports were of wood. In this manner, the lamb was roasted and placed upon the table. What a true image of our Lord on the cross. Think of one-fourth of a million lambs extended on such cross sticks. Picture to your mind the blood of these lambs on a hundred thousand doorposts between, between which the Jews passed, as between so many signs of God's merciful promises. The blood shall be unto you for a sign in the houses where you shall be, and I shall see the blood and shall pass over you. Exodus twelve thirteen. Verily, Jerusalem was in that day a city of crosses and blood and sacrificial lambs. This was the feast of the Pash celebrated for hundreds of years by the faithful Hebrews. Was there no special meaning or deep significance in all this? 
What a grand spectacle in the sight of high heaven, looking down upon this sinful earth to behold now, not 250,000 sacrificial lambs and the bloody doorposts of the old law, but Jesus, the son of the living God, a lamb standing as it were slain, Apocalypse 5, 6, on 250,000 altars in the holy sacrifice of the mass every day, the world over, pleading with his five wounds for us poor banished children of Eve. 250,000 chalices with thy blood, O Lord, the blood of Gethsemane, of the Praetorium, of Golgotha, all the blood poured out in thy seven effusions. What love, what a bountiful redemption. Copiosa apud eum redemptio. Psalm 129. The Hebrew high priests entered once in the long round of 12 months in the dread holy of holies in the great temple of old, holding on high before his eyes a chalice of steaming blood. Now hundreds of thousands of priests ascend the altar daily to hold aloft for our propitiation the chalice containing not the blood of an animal, but the adorable blood and the Son of God. The divine blood issuing from the Savior's sacred wounds on Calvary was destined to flow over the entire earth for all time to come through the church which our Redeemer established in his blood. He hath purchased the church with his own blood. Acts twenty twenty eight. God the Father sent a deluge of water to destroy all living creatures, but God the Son deluged the world with his blood to save all living creatures. During Holy Week, the church sings, the earth, the sea, the stars, the whole world have been washed in this blood. Terra, Pontus, Astra, Mundus quo laventur flumina. The church also sings in her office, the marvelous strength of love has washed the universe with this blood. Miratandem vis amoris, lavit orbem flumina. More beautiful than the rivers of paradise, this life-giving stream flows through the channels of the mass and the sacraments into millions of hearts, purifying, sanctifying, and glorifying souls. Every good thought and every holy desire taking root in the heart and blossoming into fruit, issuing from a soil that has been moistened by the precious blood. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all things to myself. John twelve thirty two. But how wilt thou draw us, O Lord? Ah, as the flower is inclined to the sun, as the heart is drawn to the running fountain, by the love of thy precious blood, leaping out from thy sacred heart on the cross, and falling in profusion over us in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and flowing through the channels of thy sacraments into our souls, thereby softening our hardened hearts, and reviving our indifferent and drooping spirits, as plants after a refreshing rain. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who sometime were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.13 The blood of Christ is a magnet that draws souls unto itself and inclines God, the tree of life, to show his mercy. St. Mary Magdalene de Pazzi The shedding of Christ's blood on the cross is renewed in the Mass. Once for all, Christ shed his blood in a visible and painful manner, but at this we could not be present. The shedding of blood is, however, repeated daily in an invisible manner. St. Chrysostom says, The Lamb of God is immolated for thee. His blood flows mystically upon the altar. The blood contained in the chalice is drawn for thy cleansing from his sacred side. In the formula of consecration, the priest does not content himself with saying, this is the chalice of my blood. 
He continues by using Christ's own words, which shall be shed for you and for many to the remission of sins. As the first part of the sentence is certainly fulfilled, with no less certainty will the latter part be fulfilled. Consequently, the sacred blood of Christ is verily and indeed shed in the Mass. This same author proceeds as follows. As the precious blood is really shed when Mass is celebrated, so it is likewise sprinkled upon all who are present and poured out upon their souls. Of this we have a clear type in the Old Testament, to which St. Paul refers when he speaks of how Moses sprinkled the blood of calves and goats upon all the people, saying, This is the blood of the Testament which God hath enjoyed unto you, Hebrews 9, 20. The words Christ employed when he consecrated the chalice at the Last Supper are almost identical. This is the New Testament in my blood, St. Luke twenty two twenty. St. Paul adds, in the passage already quoted, It is necessary, therefore, that the patterns of heavenly things should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. By this, he meant to say that the Jewish synagogue which was a type of the Catholic Church, was cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood of calves and goats, whereas the Catholic Church is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb of God. St. Chrysostom says, Thou seest that Christ is immolated in the Mass. Thou seest that the people present are sprinkled and marked with the crimson blood from his veins. In this passage, this great doctor of the Church expressly asserts that in Holy Mass, the blood of Christ is not merely poured out for us, but poured out upon us. Marchantius says the same. The precious blood is shed in the Mass as a holy oblation, and the souls of the faithful who stand around are sprinkled with it. St. Paul speaks very clearly. You are come to Jesus, the mediator of the New Testament, and to the sprinkling of blood which speaketh better than that of Abel. Hebrews 12.24 Here it may be asked, When do we come to Jesus, our mediator? In Holy Communion, we approach very near to him and receive him into our hearts. But we do not come to him as to our mediator then. We receive him as our spiritual sustenance. It is in Holy Mass that we come to him as our true mediator and intercessor. For in this, he is himself the real high priest, whose office it is to make intercession for the people. Now, if we come to him in the Mass as to our mediator, at the same time we come, as St. Paul says, to the sprinkling of blood. This sprinkling takes place whenever Mass is celebrated. Our bodies are not sprinkled, but our souls. In his passion, the blood of Christ was shed, but it fell upon the stones and upon the ground. In Holy Mass, the selfsame blood is shed. It does not, however, fall upon the earth, nor upon the bodies of men. It is applied to the souls of those who are present. Just as Moses sprinkled the Jews with the blood of the sacrificial victims, and the priest sprinkles Christian people with holy water, so Christ spiritually sprinkles the souls of the faithful with his blood, which is shed for them in the Mass. This spiritual sprinkling is far more beneficial to us than the material sprinkling. Hear what St. Magdalene of Pazzi says concerning it. This blood, when applied to the soul, imparts to it as much dignity as if it were decked in a costly robe. It imparts to it such brilliancy and splendor that couldst thou behold the effulgence of thy soul, when sprinkled with that blood, thou wouldst fall down to adore it. Remarkable words indeed. Happy the soul which is adorned with such beauty. Go often to Mass, dear reader, that thou mayest there be sprinkled with the blood of Christ and arrayed in rich apparel, which will render thee glorious forever in the sight of angels and saints. We here recall the words of the prophets spoken of Christ. Who is this that cometh from Edom, 
with dyed garments from Basra, this beautiful one in his robe, walking in the greatness of his strength. Why then is thy apparel red and thy garments like theirs that tread in the winepress? Isaiah 63. We have seen that the blood of Christ is shed for us and that our souls are sprinkled with it in the mass. Now we must not forget that this sacred blood cries to God in the holy sacrifice and ascends to his throne as an odor of sweetness in our behalf. Although the cry sent up by innumerable sins is so loud that it is heard in the high heaven, yet the voice of the blood of Christ pleading for us in the holy sacrifice of the mass is still more powerful. It is almighty and infinite. It does not merely pierce the clouds, it reaches the heart of God the Father. God said to Cain, The voice of thy brother's blood crieth to me from the earth. Genesis 4.10 If the blood of innocent Abel cried from the ground with so loud a voice that it was heard in heaven, and God himself was compelled to look down from heaven upon the earth and avenge the fratricidal act, what will not the power of Christ's blood be? Shed as it is daily upon our altars and offered up to God, Abel's blood cried for vengeance. The blood of Christ cries for mercy. Now we know that God is far more inclined to show mercy than to do vengeance. As the church says in one of her prayers, O God, whose property is ever to have mercy and to spare. The voice of Abel's blood was no audible voice, yet it was so powerful that it rose from earth to heaven. The voice of the blood shed by Jesus Christ in Holy Mass is likewise mystic, yet it too is so powerful that it compels an angry God to show mercy. You are come to Jesus, the mediator of the New Testament, and to the sprinkling of blood, which speaketh better than that of Abel. This passage implies that if we come to Jesus sprinkled with blood, that blood cries to God for mercy upon sinners with a voice that will take no denial. In addition to the all-prevailing cry, which the blood of Christ sends up to heaven, there is something else peculiar to it, whereby the anger of God is appeased, namely, the sweet odor which ascends from that blood when it is shed upon the altar. Referring to the Jewish burnt sacrifice, God says, The morning holocaust you shall always offer every day of the seven days for the food of the fire and for a most sweet odor to the Lord, which shall rise from the holocaust and from the libations of each. Numbers 28, 23 and 27. Now, if the odor arising from the burnt flesh of animals and the effusion of their blood was agreeable to Almighty God, what will not the most sweet odor of Christ's precious blood effect when offered upon the altar as a holocaust worthy of his divine majesty? When the priest offers the chalice, he says, We offer unto thee, O Lord, the chalice of salvation, beseeching thy clemency, that in the sight of thy divine majesty it may ascend with the odor of sweetness for our salvation and for that of the whole world. The priest makes use of these words because the wine contained in the chalice will be changed into the precious blood of Christ. St. Paul says, Christ hath loved us and hath delivered himself for us, an oblation and a sacrifice to God for an odor of sweetness. Ephesians 5.2 When this precious holocaust was offered upon the cross with shedding of blood and at the cost of great pain, so delicious was the fragrance that ascended to heaven that it counteracted the evil odor that arose from the many and grievous sins of mankind. For the death of Christ, the shedding of his blood, was more pleasing to God than the iniquities of the world were displeasing to him. And when this divine victim is sacrificed and his blood shed mystically upon our altars, a sweet and agreeable odor daily ascends thence unto the Lord. Thus, if with a contrite heart, 
thou dost offer the precious blood of Christ to God in holy mass. Not only dost thou dispel the stench of thy sins by the perfume of his blood, but thou dost more to please God than thou hast done to displease him by thy misdeeds. When the patriarch Isaac, whose eyes were dimmed with age, had kissed his son Jacob dressed in the garments of his brother Esau, Holy Scripture tells us that on smelling the fragrant odor of his garments, he blessed him and desired for him every kind of temporal prosperity. The most sweet odor of Christ's blood has a similar effect, so that God looks with favor upon the pious worshiper who offers it to him in Holy Mass and bestows upon him his divine benediction. With an increase of grace and of celestial gifts, all the saints, too, rejoice when Mass is celebrated, when the perfume of the sacred blood rises in clouds of fragrance from the altar, filling the courts of heaven to the joy and refreshment of all its blessed inhabitants. Let it therefore be our endeavor, when present at Mass, to adore the precious blood with devout veneration, to implore its intercession, and to offer it to God for our salvation. At this stream of Christ's precious blood, let us weep when we remember our Savior's intense love for us, as did the Israelites of old when they remembered Sion near the rivers of Babylon. Let our right hand be forgotten if we do not hang up our workaday instruments to make the holy sacrifice of the new law, the beginning of our joy, at least on the Lord's day. Let my tongue cleave to my jaws if I sound not thy praise, O Lord in thy holy temple where thou, our King, dost offer worship to thy heavenly Father in our behalf. For you are come to Mount Sion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the company of many thousands of angels, and to Jesus, the mediator of the New Testament, and to the sprinkling of blood, which speaketh better than that of Abel. Hebrews twelve, twenty-two through 24. So ends that reading from Devotion to the Precious Blood. We can never be grateful enough for what our Lord has done for us, for what he has sacrificed for us on his holy cross. And as I mentioned the other day, echoing the words of Dr. Ralph Martin, we should endeavor by God's grace not to offend him in even the slightest thing. Mortal sins, of course, unrepented of, our sins that will send us to hell for all eternity. But even venial sins are profoundly displeasing and indeed disgusting to our Lord. All sin is offensive to the Lord. And venial sins can turn ultimately into mortal sins. So let us ask Jesus for the grace by the power of his most precious blood to not offend him in anything at all and to make frequent use of the sacrament of confession. This is the next installment from the book Plinio Correa de Oliveira, Prophet of the Reign of Mary by Professor Roberto Di Mattei. I highly recommend buying a copy for yourself. This section is entitled The Historical Certainty of the Revolution's Defeat. For Plinio, the certainty of God's triumph does not come from reading theologians, but from the requirements of divine justice facing the present state of the world and the needs of the counter-revolution in its struggle against the revolution. Knowing the revolution and the counter-revolution and considering this universal disorder, one could not but think that there would necessarily be a punishment and a victory of God now or at the end of the world. In this latter case, we would tread a sorrowful path, 
until the sudden explosion of joy, seeing that God would no longer be offended, that his justice and mercy were drawing closer, and judgment day was coming. The battle's outcome would be a triumphal one for God, although it would not be seen, excuse me, although it would not be in this life. We could die before that, but some survivors would still see God's triumph in this life. Plinio, however, wanted a triumph of justice and mercy, not only at the end of the world, but for our days, for a reason at the same time theological and psychological. Great sins bring great punishment for peoples. Great punishments bring great amendments. And great amendments bring great reconciliations. This is the order of the economy of grace. Look, for example, at the expulsion from paradise after original sin. It was a tremendous punishment, but at the same time with the promise of the Messiah. Then, after the flood, came the rainbow. The Jewish people themselves were promised a spectacular conversion at the end of the world. In other words, this is a sequence. If the end of the world does not come now, there has to be a reconciliation as great as the punishment. Professor Plinio presents other reasons to maintain there will be the reign of Mary before the end of the world. Despite 400 years of a diabolical conspiracy to eliminate all the remains of Christian civilization, we are astonished to see that some institutions still remain, and, however much their leaderships are de-Christianized, today's nations still show a level of religious resistance no one could have imagined one could count on. If we compare, for example, the influence of the papacy today with what it was 100 years ago, we come to the conclusion that all that pseudoscientific offensive of irreligion, which raged in Europe and dazzled the nations of the New World, has disappeared. While it is true that there is an offensive by communist atheism, and that atheism exists even among theologians, it is also true that in the contemporary world, the masses are less and less impressed by all this, and that over the last 100 years, the word of a pope was never as able to influence events as profoundly as it is today. Why is the church a force that all the governments of the earth have to reckon with, even if they're anti-religious? Why is it that a hundred years ago, ungodliness openly attacked the church and today it puts on a theological mask to be able to attack the church? It is undoubtedly because there has been a religious persistence in the world, a faint, weak, and drowsy fidelity, if you will, but in any case, a fidelity that amazes. Now, if God's justice is clairvoyant, it does not leave the least fault unpunished nor fail to take the smallest act of virtue in due consideration. And if his mercy is boundless for those who sin, he is a fortiori also merciful to those in whom he finds some good. In today's world, there appears to be something that, in God's eyes, does not deserve to die, but rather to survive. And this is one of the reasons why we should believe in a great tomorrow after a great punishment. That quote comes from 1967, if I can interject for a moment. And Professor Plinio um, had not seen, of course, the changes in the mass at that point and the absolute wreckage that would take place after the Second Vatican Council. But in succession, I, I think it's no exaggeration to say that in the late 1800s and early 1900s, we had three consecutive magnificent popes in blessed Pius IX, Leo XIII, and St. Pius X, who warned time and time again about the errors of modernism, 
who emphasized the rosary. Blessed Pius IX made reference to the fact that if he had an army praying the rosary, he could conquer the world. I believe Leo XIII wrote something on the order of 11 encyclicals about the rosary. And of course, St. Pius X was very devoted to the rosary as well. So those three consecutive popes were very Marian in their outlook and attacked modernism over and over and over again. Unfortunately, these popes of the last 50 and 60 years, um, making no judgment, of course, on their individual souls, which are known only to the Lord and, and whatever other outside influences were um, thrust upon them, seem as though they did not take heed to those three popes and what they warned about in terms of uh, communism and the threats to the church, both from without and from within. Although on June 29th, 1972, um, Pope Paul VI gave his famous uh, Smoke of Satan speech where he said that it seems as if the, I'm paraphrasing, but he said it seems as if the, the smoke of Satan has entered into the church and this came in the wake of him signing off on changing um, the, the formula for all seven sacraments and, and the changes involved with the Mass. Again, not judging Paul VI individually, but the popes are responsible for defending the faith. Continuing in the text, it says, Another reason could be added. Never have the driving forces of the revolution had such a small ability to drag people with them. Never have the masses been so indifferent to the noise of the revolution. And if there is a bored indifference toward Christian civilization, there is also a bored indifference toward the revolution. For this reason, one would say that a huge mental vacuum is forming in the world today. This mental emptiness affects people whose mentality no longer has the complexity, vivacity, and stridency that once existed in the struggle between the revolution and the counter-revolution. It is that kind of man without ideology, temperament, or conviction that we usually call glass man. This void is already a proof of the weakness of the revolution. It is a proof that the claws of the revolution no longer penetrate the entire fabric of the soul of the contemporary world, and it already indicates a kind of loss of strength, which in the darkness and desolation of the contemporary situation represents a factor in the breakdown of the revolution. Even more, we find with much joy and consolation that however empty the soul of the glass man is, that emptiness is open to receive precisely the seeds sown by the cause of Our Lady. Accordingly, we find everywhere people whose spirit is full of that emptiness, but who heed the call of the counter-revolution, and people in whose emptiness the seeds of the reign of Mary begins to germinate. Therefore, you have the beginning of a change, just as plants under the snow do not die but germinate, and when the thaw comes, one sees that all nature is alive, so also at the height of this winter of the revolution something is beginning to germinate, trying to break out of the snow crust. And this germination not only indicates that providence will save the world, but also that the hour of mercy has come. The time of forgiveness is approaching, and a radiant tomorrow is being prepared in the bosom of today's arrows excuse me, of today's sorrows. So ends the reading for today. Stay the course, my friends. Pray, hope, and don't worry in the immortal words of St. Padre Pio. 
He also famously said, bring me my weapon, and everyone knew what he was talking about. It wasn't a gun. It was a spiritual nuclear weapon, the rosary. Pray your rosary every single day. Fathers and grandfathers, you're responsible for the care of your families, not only financially and physically protecting them, but also, and most importantly, spiritually. So fathers and grandfathers out there, lead your wives, lead your kids, lead your grandkids in the rosary every day of your life. Never miss a day. Let us conclude by offering up prayers in honor of Our Lady and St. Joseph. First, the prayer for the hastening of the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary by Bishop Schneider. O Immaculate Heart of Mary, Holy Mother of God and our tender mother, look upon the distress in which the whole of mankind is living due to the spread of materialism, godlessness, and the persecution of the Catholic faith. In our own day, the mystical body of Christ is bleeding from so many wounds caused within the church by the unpunished spread of heresies, the justification of sins against the sixth commandment, the seeking of the kingdom of earth rather than that of heaven, the horrendous sacrileges against the most holy Eucharist, especially through the practice of communion in the hand and the Protestant shaping of the celebration of the Holy Mass. Amidst these trials appeared the light of the consecration of Russia to thine immaculate heart by the Pope in union with the world's bishops. In Fatima, thou didst request the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays of the month. Implore thy divine son to grant a special grace to the Pope that he might approve the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. May Almighty God hasten the time when Russia will convert to Catholic unity, mankind will be given a time of peace, and the Church will be granted an authentic renewal in the purity of the Catholic faith, the sacredness of divine worship, and the holiness of Christian life. O Mediatrix of all graces, O Queen of the Most Holy Rosary and our sweet Mother, turn thine eyes of mercy towards us and graciously hear this, our trusting prayer. Amen. Prayer of St. Louis de Montfort. Hail, Joseph the Just, wisdom is with you. Blessed are you among all men, and blessed is Jesus, the fruit of Mary, your faithful spouse. Holy Joseph, worthy foster father of Jesus Christ, pray for us sinners and obtain divine wisdom for us from God now and at the hour of our death. Amen. O most holy Trinity, I adore thee. My God, my God, I love thee in the most blessed sacrament. Virgo potens, ora pro nobis, sancti Joseph, terra daimonem, ora pro nobis. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Thank you so much, my friends, for listening to episode 238 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. In your charity, please share this podcast with everyone you know. Follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Fatima Podcast. And above all else, pray for the eternal salvation of the Vicar of Christ on earth, Pope Francis. Goodbye and God love you.